Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for October 16th, 2020. I hope you're all doing well, uh, at least as well as possible these days. Uh, thanks as always for stopping by and checking out the podcast. Uh, if you like this interview and you want to hear more like it about U.S. foreign policy and international affairs, uh, you can check out this podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Or, better yet, uh, you can come check out Foreign Exchanges, the newsletter, which goes along with the podcast and is available at Substack, fx.substack.com. Come sign up for our, our free email list and uh, get regular updates on what's going on in the world uh, and analysis of U.S. foreign policy. If you really like it, uh, subscribe and get even more content, uh, more information about what's going on in the world uh, and analysis of U.S. foreign policy, and you'll be supporting uh, the continuation of the newsletter and the podcast and all the other uh, wonderful things that we're doing. Speaking of the wonderful things that we're doing, uh, I'm very happy to be joined this week uh, by Daniel Bessner. Uh, Daniel is a professor at the University of Washington uh, who specializes in uh, the intellectual history of U.S. foreign relations. He is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. Uh, he is a contributing editor at Jacobin. He has a book written in 2018, or published, I should say, in 2018. I'm sure it was uh, took a while to write before that, uh, but it was published in 2018 called Democracy in Exile uh, and uh, is the co-editor uh, of another book that was published last year called The Decisionist Imagination. Uh, he is also, also uh, the new-ish, I guess, it's been uh, about a month now, a little over a month, uh, columnist at Foreign Exchanges. So this is a little bit of a, a self-referential interview this week, but uh, I like that kind of thing. Uh, Daniel just wrote a new piece this week uh, called Realism in U.S. Foreign Policy uh, that traces some of the origins, the intellectual origins uh, of U.S. foreign policy in the post-World War II period uh, and looks at the fundamental role that the international relations theory of realism has played in the development of U.S. foreign policy and what that means uh, for folks who are looking to maybe reboot or reform or change U.S. foreign policy from a leftist perspective. Uh, so we'll be talking about that piece. We'll talk about his uh, first piece uh, for foreign exchanges because I think they uh, they mesh very well together and just generally uh, I think we'll we'll get into some of the um, you know some of the the aspects of the foreign policy establishment and the challenges uh, that are uh, kind of sitting in front of anybody who is looking to change that foreign policy establishment primarily uh, on an intellectual and uh, sort of um, institutional level. So uh, we'll try to dig into some of those things uh, as we move forward. Uh, with that, uh, I'm going to get him on the line here and we will start the interview. All right. So I have with me foreign exchanges columnist Daniel Petzner. <laughs> I gave your whole I gave your whole bio in the, the intro, so don't worry. 
Oh, uh, no. Uh, le- <laughs> the less bio, the better, I think, in these cases. Uh, in graduate school, my advisor once told me the only impressive CV, which is sort of the academic resume that he's ever seen, just had like the guy's name and Nobel Prize winner. So hopefully nice. you know, there's sort of yeah, an that... inverse correlation to length of bio and prestige of person sometimes. That would cover it. I mean, yeah, Nobel Prize winner probably. Yeah, you don't really have to go say any more than that. Yeah, one day, oh. one day, I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are, I would like to discuss with you, uh, you've now written two columns for the newsletter, and uh, I think people have uh, had a chance to read them and, and soak them in, uh, on the development of U.S. foreign policy in the sort of post-World War II uh, era. Um I would like to kind of take this interview a little bit in the direction of um, what can we do about this mess that we've created uh, now. But I think uh, for people who maybe haven't read both columns or, you know, maybe they read the first one and uh, it sort of slipped their mind. Let's why don't we start? Uh, with kind of the the you know five minute or not even maybe um, kind of run through of how U.S. foreign policy came to uh, be kind of develop in the way that it did uh, at in the early years of the Cold War and then kind of through the the rest of the twentieth century. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, I'll just take people through the pieces because I, that's a, a pretty big question. And I think different people will give you different answers. Um, and I think this is one of the important things just to recognize when you're thinking about the development of U.S. foreign policy. Your argument kind of relates to what you're looking at. You know, so historians might say the United States was searching for security. Some Marxists might say the United States was looking to expand markets. People who study gender and sexuality would say, like, it's particular ideas of you know, patriarchy or what have you that informed U.S. foreign policy. So I, I just want to emphasize, I don't think there's one over overarching um, theme, one overarching perspective. When you look at what might be considered the maelstrom of history, there's different strands interacting at different times. And, you know, each individual analyst or, you know, group of people chooses to emphasize one particular thing or two particular things based on their previous ideological presuppositions and whatnot. So um, that's just sort of, I think, a useful way to think about history and historical analysis. But what I was emphasizing in my pieces was uh, in the first piece, I talked in particular about how... um, the U.S. foreign policy establishment has, since World War II, been operating in what one might term a, a Manichaean framework, a framework that divides the world into good versus evil. Uh, and this framework, in my opinion, which has, you know, there's been elements of it forever in U.S. foreign policy thinking, and, and probably, frankly, in most, you know, polities throughout human history, there were people who were inside, uh, and there were people who were outside of the community. So, uh, in some sense, this is kind of an ancient way of understanding human relations. But when we're speaking about U.S. foreign policy, I think we could pretty much 
uh, clearly see that beginning in the 1930s, uh, there was this idea developed amongst the U.S. foreign policy establishment that Nazism, um, Nazi Germany, and, and one might even say fascism more broadly as a movement, um, was an existential threat to the United States because it threatened to cut off American intercourse with the rest of the world. Um, intercourse refers to, of course, economic exchange, cultural exchange, political exchange, and whatnot. And the idea that a lot of Americans began uh, to conclude when they saw the rise of Hitler and the fact that Hitler was so obviously not in, in um, you know, in conformity with liberal principles was that the emergence of, of Nazi Germany as a, a serious peer competitor to the United States um, was necessarily bad for the United States and that the United States was good and Hitler was evil. And, you know, there, there was a lot of truth to this, I think. I think, you know, most people aren't... Um, Hitler, most uh, leaders are in Hitler, but Hitler was a generally evil person who pretty much had designs on dominating Europe and North Africa and much of the Middle East and much of the, the Caucasus as well and expanding, you know, Lebensraum living space to the East. Um, so I think it's legitimate to for these people to have viewed Hitler as an existential threat. The problem, however, was I think that after the United States won World War II, um, the nation's elites, the people who would literally build the national security state and the National Security Act of 1947, people who would populate it, people who would write about it in public like Walter Lippmann, uh, transferred their existential anxieties about Hitler onto the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin. Um, you know, because to, to a lot of people at the time, it was pretty clear that Stalin was a dictator. Um, you know, you had the Moscow trials of the late 30s, of, uh, of the, you know, 36 and on. You've got the, you know, the um, Holodomor, uh, uh, the, the starving of, uh, you know, the, uh, the peasants in the Soviet Union. Um, and so people pretty easily transferred the anxieties uh, uh, from Hitler onto, onto Stalin and the Soviet Union. Um, but nevertheless, you know, regardless of what you think about Stalin, I actually don't think Stalin was um, serious about any designs on expanding Soviet influence globally in a way similar to the United States. I think archives have pretty much revealed that Stalin didn't want a Cold War. Um, regardless of where you fall on Stalin himself, I think it's pretty clear that after he died in March 1953, Soviet leaders, you know, Khrushchev, who eventually emerged as a Soviet leader in the mid to late 50s, you know, just weren't Stalin, either in personality or, you know, charismatic dictator or, or anything really like that. But the problem was that the United States' elites had really embraced this mannequin framework and had began to view all Soviet leaders after Stalin, the Soviet Union, quasi-Soviet Union, as a necessarily existential threat to the United States. Um, and I think that this provided a logic for U.S. foreign policy throughout the Cold War. Um, the problem, though, of course, is that the United States eventually uh, emerged victorious in the Cold War. I wouldn't say won the Cold War. I'd say the Soviet Union uh, really lost the Cold War, and that you know that's a, a bigger conversation we could have for another time. But regardless. After the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the question was, what do you do with the American empire, an empire that was built specifically, or at least in public, um, in, in public rhetoric and, and, you know, public argument for it uh, in order to, you know, defend democracy, defend liberal capitalism and defeat communism, defeat totalitarianism, authoritarianism, whatever you may call it. Um, and I think what you, you saw after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, between 1989 and 1991, eventually falls in late 1991, um, um, 
the United. So after this happened, I see. Uh, I think you're able to see the United States' elites, its foreign policy making elites, begin to look for another logic um, that justifies American empire. Uh, and I think this is a, a reason um, why you see so much Holocaust stuff, the Holocaust memory in the 1990s, things like Schindler's List, but also just a general resurgence of Holocaust memory, or maybe its first surgence, as the case may be, um, because essentially U.S. policymakers argued that they would become, or the nation would become kind of the world's policeman. It would, it would you know, after the failure to intervene in Rwanda, but the uh, the success, quote-unquote, of the intervention in Bosnia, uh, and later Kosovo, um, the idea was that the United States would sort of end genocide wherever it may be in the world, and this is what the American empire would do. Um, now, this may or may not have been a sufficient justification for the continuation of the empire of bases and things like that, that viewer, um, people who are listening here are aware of. But of course, the military establishment, the foreign policy establishment got a gift in, in 9-11 when it was very easy to, you know, consider uh quote unquote Islamic jihad or jihadism or whatever you want to call it as a threat analogous to first the Nazis and then the Soviets. And you actually see this in the rhetoric, right? You see like Jonah Goldberg's famous book, Islamofascism, which is just very clearly arguing that, you know, quote unquote Islamic jihad is the same thing as the Nazis, is the same thing as the Soviet Union, a real existential threat to the United States. Um However, I would say, you know, within a decade, 15 years at the most, it was pretty clear to most Americans that even after sort of the horror of, of 9-11, that quote-unquote Islamic jihadists didn't truly present an existential threat to the United States. Um, but, you know, there was another rising power, China, which also fit the bill and, and perhaps fit the bill perfectly and, and quite uh, in a way that was quite better, I think, than, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda or even ISIS like that because China is a gigantic state. It, it's extremely powerful. It has a billion people. It has its own unique ideology, some type of capitalist authoritarianism. And I think that's what we're seeing now is a return or rather sort of um, a re resurgence in a powerful way of this Manichaean way, uh, Manichaean um, framework of understanding international uh, relations. So that's what basically that first piece was about. If we go in, going into your second piece, which is about the. Uh, sort of role that realism as as in the international relations theory uh, has played in the development of U.S. foreign policy, and then you you make the the case that it's been the most influential uh, of the the you know, sort of IR theories in terms of uh, how things have have developed. Um, I I I wanna I wonder you know you know about the um, and there's so many, I mean, there's so many Cold War, you know, kind of uh, old Cold War heads and even, you know, uh, Bush administration people. I mean, you list some of them and, uh, you know, there's Kissinger, which, you know, some people argue was not a, he was not a realist. Uh, but Brzezinski, uh, you know, coming up more recently, like Condoleezza Rice, a lot of people who, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, have, have served, have gone through sort of the... Uh, kind of intellectual uh, development that was that was laid out by the realist school in the in the mid century, and, and uh, you know where you you know you talk about this sort of uh, becoming uh, getting to the point where you know you kind of have to have a PhD uh, to get to this level of where you're sort of influencing foreign policy, and that's a, a kind of a product of this period. Um, but I, I wanted to ask about I want to ask you about sort of the relationship between 
realism and this Manichaeanism that you talk about in the first piece, because there's, uh, um, it's it, it seems to me that for a lot of realists, maybe maybe all realists really, if you uh, approach an, a realist, you know, IR realist, and say, uh, you know, the world is full of good guys and bad guys, and they're at war with each other, and uh, the good guys have to win. Most people who consider themselves realists would scoff at this notion. Uh, um, you know, they would they would argue that that that's in fact not the case. Uh, but there is a way that realism kind of feeds into the this Manichaean fear of the bad guys, and that's in uh, I think one of the things you, you know, one of the things you talk about the 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 tenet of realism that says uh, there is no uh, I think rightly I mean I think this is something that realists get right there is no kind of a uh, super national law or institution that's coming to the rescue if something you know something bad happens uh and that it's really every nation for for themselves uh and i think that that maybe that's the the way that there's kind of an interplay here because you've got on the one hand you know people who divide the world up into uh, good guys and bad guys. And then, you know, on the other hand, you've got these people who are saying, uh, you know, we really have to, we, we can't rely on anybody else. It has to be a sort of, uh, you know, uh, we have to kind of uh, protect ourselves. Is that, I mean, is that uh, part of the, the foundation of where we've gotten to, or uh, like talk, maybe talk a little bit about how realism has, has influenced things. Sure. Um, I think one of the things when you're looking at actual policymakers, um, it, it's important, in my opinion, to recognize that when someone's actually making policy, no one's a pure anything. Um, there's a million things that go into the particular foreign policy that is made from an ideological way of viewing the world, like, you know, pro-capitalist to sort of foundational assumptions about what it means to be an international uh, a state acting in international relations that one might call realist, to, you know, bureaucratic politics, to particular personalities to whether what you had for lunch that day. So I think there's a lot of things that go into the actual historical making of foreign policy and that no one's won anything. So I just wanted to make that point. But um, I think that while some realists today would sort of scoff at that viewpoint uh, that, you know, it, it's good versus evil, I would argue that the fundamental philosophical orientation of a, of a realist is that there there is good and evil fundamentally in the world, that this is the tragic reality of not only international relations, but human relations. Uh, human beings living in the world are necessary, uh, are necessarily kind of Habesian or, or Hobbesian people. You know, human nature is, is brutal. Um, human beings are necessarily going to fight um, against each other because there's um, what Hans Morgenthau, the first realist, called an atomist domamandi, a, a sort of will to dominate inherent in, in the human actor, and therefore uh, geopolitical conflict is endemic. Uh, and I think, you know, whether or not realists realize it or not, this frankly, anti-enlightenment perspective um, fits quite in well into a Manichaean understanding of international relations, which kind of breaks down IR into good versus evil. Now, I think when re realists are actually interacting in the world, they would be more sophisticated about it. But I think their foundational assumptions about international relations, which is ultimately that you can never really get over the fact that there will be war and to think otherwise is naive is directly related to this type of Manichaean thinking that I described in my first 
piece. Um, now, in terms of influence, I, I again, I want to emphasize that policymakers, you know, they're never any one thing. But I would say realism is really the dominant strand um, of thinking in the political science discipline of international relations, which a lot, though not all, um, policymakers have been trained in since IR really became a field in the 1950s. Um, and so then the question is, if you're taught, you know, on the first day of IR theory, undergraduate and graduate class, that everything is kind of... Um, uh, what would be the word, orbiting around realism, or that realism is kind of the the base of your philosophical assumptions of viewing IR, to me, that necessarily has an effect. If the foundational assumption that you have to prove wrong is that war is endemic and that human beings are naturally going to fight each other, that, in my opinion, has an effect on how people understand the world. And in particular, I think that downplays the importance of diplomacy to international relations in general. So um, it's ironic because I think today realists would say that the American empire has gone too far and they would actually blame that on an idealistic Christian millenarianism or an idealistic, you know, belief in democracy and liberalism or what have you. But I would say that uh, a lot of the spur to that empire came from the realist notion that you can never actually um, get peace because as Hitler showed and then Stalin showed um, to the first generation of realists, war was necessarily going to happen in international relations. So I would. this is why I would say um, realists today might say something along the lines of you don't want to fight in the Middle East, but they would say that you don't want to fight in the Middle East because it's not actually in the American interest, while at the same time they would say that uh, the United States should have a permanent base in East Asia, uh, that the United States should forever remain hegemonic in, in what is China's um, or what, you know, the Chinese would argue is their uh, sphere of influence. And that's exactly what someone like John Mersheimer argues, which makes them, I, I would say, very distinct from someone who's left wing, who's anti-imperialist. So realists aren't necessarily anti-imperial so much as they're anti what they would call sort of dumb empire or pointless empire. And I think that's really a critical thing to understand. However, at the same time, as you suggested, um, I do think realists have, you know, a lot of good points about international relations. The fact that there's no supranational organization to regulate um, state behavior is crucial, and it absolutely shapes international relations. It, it does seem like at points in history there are truly, you know, evil people bent on world domination. The problem with realism, uh, with realism and realists in general, in my opinion, is that they basically view everything through the prism of the 1930s, which necessarily works against diplomacy and the type of international organization not, that I think is necessary to creating a truly uh, peaceful world. Yeah, I mean, one of the points you make here is that um, there's a lot to there's a lot of, of aspects of realism that uh, if you're thinking about a, a left wing approach to foreign policy, you have to reckon with one of them being, uh, you know, there's there's nothing uh, above the level of the nation that that is controlling on anybody uh, that it's that it, it it's difficult to, uh, you know, sort of find a way to defend human rights without, you know, starting to verge on, uh, you know, talking about military, the use of military force in that regard. And, um, you, you categorize yourself as a socialist realist. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, uh, what that, what that entails for you. 
Sure. I mean, it's a little bit of a joke based on sort of the socialist, realist, uh, <laughs> architectural and, and art style. Uh, I thought it would be, you know, a little bit uh, of a funny thing. But I mean, the way what I mean by that is essentially that I do believe in the universal goal of socialism, which is, as, as I understand it, a sort of world in which people are, are genuinely equal and which people have both positive freedom to achieve their greatest good and negative freedom to, you know, be free of totalitarian. I don't buy that phrase, actually. Let's just say authoritarian forces that necessarily would limit things like free speech. Um, so, I mean, I think that's a universalist project in a sense. That's a, that's a project that should apply to every human in sort of the uh, achievement of freedom um, in a utopian sense, in a, my utopian philosophical beliefs about what I think is like capital R right in the world. However, I think the realists have a lot of um, good points about the difficulties of using um, military power to actually achieve a world that you know that utopian world uh and so i think on the left in particular um you run into this question when people talk about humanitarian intervention or you know the idea of do you use military power to save babies right and and any you know moral or ethical person would say you know if in a vacuum of course you know like you, you of course who wouldn't save the babies um the problem uh though and i think this is where the left is muddled in its thinking is that it's essentially as i view it an argument in favor of quote-unquote good empire right the argument is essentially that you want to have the good of the empire and not the bad of the empire but what i would say is that historically speaking it's very clear um that you can't have, you know, there's no real, there's really no such thing as a good empire. You can't use the military tools um, of empire for good in the long run. I mean, for a variety of reasons. And most importantly to me, I think that sort of outside interference, that exogenous interference in local regions distorts developments on the ground that have the sort of their own political um, trajectory, their own historical trajectory that, you know, someone comes in and gives weapons or, you know, interacts uh, is going to affect. And perhaps even more importantly, Importantly, um, if you have the weapons, you know, to, to participate in the humanitarian intervention or to save the proverbial babies, that essentially means that the empire is continuing. Um, and I think that's a big problem for uh, an anti-imperialist left. I think ultimately you can't really have a good empire. Um, and I was actually disheartened a, a few months ago. I think I posted a, a poll on Twitter is like basically asking, should the left believe in humanitarian intervention? And I think most people said yes, um, which indicates to me that, you know, may, maybe I just think I'm right. <laughs> but it just indicates to me that 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 uh, thought hasn't been, you know, that opinion hasn't been fully thought through in a way that one might want it to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think people, if they're... Um... I guess I should I should say if they're old enough to remember this, I don't I, I'm going to make myself feel very old here. But I mean, you know, uh, for a lot of people, I think the formative case in point is uh, Rwanda and this feeling that the United States should have done something, even among, uh, you know, people I would consider to be uh, on the left, you kind of look at that situation and. Um, you know, it, it feels like there should have been something the United States could do. Um, but I think, you know, I, the, the, the response that, that you would have, and, and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I guess, but, uh, I think it's the right one is, uh, that to intervene militarily in a situation like that, uh, you know, you present, you're presenting a sort of 
counterfactual that a assumes the United States would have done everything right uh, and solved the problem uh, and not made it worse, which I think we have a lot of evidence to suggest that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and B, you're still kind of perpetuating the use of this toolkit that says uh, the United States is allowed, it's entitled uh, to kind of intervene wherever we decide uh, an intervention needs to happen. And that in the long run leads you to worse places than, uh, you know, uh, while you can pick out any one case and say, oh, gosh, uh, we should do something here. Uh, the, the sum total of that is not something that uh, a, a left-wing kind of movement could get behind. Exactly. I think that's right. And I think if you, if the ultimate goal of um, an anti-imperialist movement is to do things like uh, dismantle this roughly 750 U.S. bases to guarantee that the United States doesn't spend more on its military than the next 10 countries combined, um, that's going to come with some quote-unquote sacrifices in the world. And those structural, those structural changes are never going to happen if the left in any way, uh, in my opinion at least, if the left in any way promotes militaristic solutions to what are ultimately political problems. Um, I think when the left is thinking in terms of foreign policy, probably the main issue, um, there are two main issues, like the fundamental one of, you know, defense of the homeland, blah, 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 which I, you know, even though I'm a leftist and I don't like the United States, it's a legitimate function of the state is to guarantee that, uh, you know, maybe you don't want this state, but like, whatever, we could talk about that at, at some other point. So let's just say homeland defense, literally against invasion. Uh, but then also, mo more importantly, uh, the redistribution of resources from the global north to the global south. And I think if one, you know, in a 1000 years, when historians, if they still exist, um, are writing about this period, I think they'll probably view it as this 500 year plus period of, of North Atlantic domination over the rest of the world, where a very small number of people, basically in, in Germany, France, the UK and the United States, you know, broadly part of this this one polity, um, and I, parenthetically, in that sense, you could kind of view World War One and World War Two as kind of a civil war, but that's a, a different question. But people would argue that this period is really the period of colonialism, where where this one set of countries um, really extracted resources from most of the rest of the world, um, and in so doing, committed um, contributed to climate catastrophe, committed you know deracination and 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 various points is genocide um, and murder in various regions of the world and just basically extracted um, things from the global south. And so to me, that should be the major focus of what a left-wing foreign policy should be. And that type of redistribution is almost necessarily um, premised on having a non-militarized, militaristic foreign policy, um, which, if you promote humanitarian intervention, is never going to happen. If people are going to push back from from the left against uh, the sort of foreign policy establishment, they will encounter uh, the quote unquote blob, uh, which I know is a term that you're, you're familiar with. It was used by uh, Ben Rhodes from the Obama administration a few years ago uh, to, to define kind of the D.C. foreign policy establishment. Um, do you find the term blob to be a useful one in any way do you think it obscures things too much uh, and um, you know how do you what what is your sort of view of what defines if anything uh, the the foreign policy establishment in Washington and I'm not I don't mean necessarily 
Republican versus Democratic, although, you know, if, if that's an element of it, uh, it seems to me there's a lot of overlap, but but you may disagree. What how do you kind of kind of take uh, what's your view of the, the establishment in that sense? Um, no, I think that's a great question. Um, so, I mean, the blob is fine. I, I mean, anything that sort of demystifies this group of people generally referred to as the foreign policy establishment is fine in my book. I think the problem with it might be that it, it makes it seem more powerful than it actually is by giving it a monstrous quality. Um, and it makes it seem, <laughs> you know, it makes it seem like it's undefeatable. And I actually think it's very defeatable. Um, the way that I view what might be termed the far, you know, which has been termed for about, uh, I think, you know, 70 ish years the foreign policy establishment, maybe a bit or even earlier than that, really people point to it getting started with um, the founding of the Council on Foreign Relations in the early 1920s, which emerged from Woodrow Wilson's The Inquiry, which was a group of experts that helped Wilson develop the plans for the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, which led to the Treaty of Versailles. That's really when the foreign policy, the modern foreign policy establishment gets going. The way that I view it, um, and oh, one thing I should say that it generally crosses parties, um, and I would say that um, since the defeat of Robert Taft in the 1952 Republican primary, um, basically both America, uh, both sides of the political spectrum, or both political parties at least, have been um, quote unquote liberal in that they promoted, you know, uh, American armed primacy, which is something that uh, came from the the center, the center left liberals in both political parties. Um, I would so I would say there's I would I would agree with you they're more similar than not. The way that I think about this establishment that promotes American empire, that promotes American primacy, that really shapes how U.S. foreign policy is made in the world is as a series of two interlocking complex. Um, first, there's the famous military-industrial um, complex, which was originally called, if I recall correctly, or Eisenhower wanted to call it the military-industrial-congressional complex. And that's essentially, you know, the, the connections between lobbying, uh, basically defense contractor lobbying in Congress, um, and the way that, you know, in exchange for congressional pork in their districts, um, Congress promote militaristic foreign policies that uh, allow defense contractors to get used con uh, huge contracts from the DOD, uh, the Department of Defense, in order to build weapons, you know, like the F-35, which never really do anything. So that's one side, sort of the people who literally produce the weapons of the American empire. Um, but the other side that I think generally critics of uh, U.S. empire have ignored to our detriment is what um, historians, particularly Ron Robin, and I borrow this from him, have termed the military intellectual complex, um, where uh, I would say that's the group of people who um, are both in the state, um, like in the State Department, um, but also people who are in parastate institutions like think tanks or even some institutions like academic research centers who basically provide the ideas, the justifying logics uh, for the American empire. Uh, and the way that I once put it in an article if, is if that the military-industrial complex builds the weapons of the American empire, the military-intellectual complex decides why and where those weapons are used. Um, so that's how I kind of view the blob as, uh, blob as this series of interlocking uh, interlocking complexes that are so complex because the American state is itself a very strange creature um, because so many of um, so many things that might be considered properly the function of a state, you know, maybe, for example, like the making of weapons have been outsourced to private companies so that literally people are able to get rich off of uh, American militarism. Um, and I think the complex nature of the state makes these networks difficult to trace. Um, but that's essentially how I think of it as a series of networks or complexes um, related to defense contractors and related to people who create the ideas of the empire.
I wanted to ask you maybe to talk a little bit about the role of the National Security Council, because I have this piece that, that you wrote. It's it's uh, from the New Republic from last May, uh, the making of the military intellectual complex. And uh, we can put that in the, the show description if people want to read it. Uh, but it, it you you put a you spend a lot of time discussing uh, the NSC as the sort of nexus in a sense of this military intellectual complex and its creation uh, again after World War II when so much of this kind of framework develops. Um, uh, talk about that that what makes the the National Security Council stand out uh, and and what role it's played in in terms of creating um this the 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 kind of networks that you're talking about sure um so i'll say something a little controversial um i think when we talk about the new deal um people are a bit limited in their perspective they're basically referring to the the alphabet uh, soup agencies of the 1930s right like the sac or the tva or what have you and that's true right there was this domestic new deal state making process um but i think there was actually you know two new deals uh, and you know historians listening i know there's a second new deal in the mid to late 1930s but i'm just going to simplify it um that you know, if we think about the first New Deal as being the creation of domestic institutions in the 1930s, we could think about a second New Deal, which was more oriented towards foreign policy, and which, um, you know, in some sense is linked directly to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's um, politics, even though it was enacted by um, Harry S. Truman, which is the creation of the national security state, the other alphabet soup agencies, the DOD, uh, the Department of Defense, the CIA, uh, and the NSC. So I think that um, it's important to understand the linking in American history between what might be called social democratic um, reforms at the domestic level and American militarism abroad because it's the sad truth that those have always been linked in our country's history and in the United States' history. And I think that presents a problem for socialists. But uh, let's bracket that for a second. So I think the NSC is important. Um, so what is the NSC? It's the National Security Council. It's headquartered in the Eisenhower Executive Building. It's very close to the White House. Um, a lot of, you know, the most famous foreign policymakers in American history, Walt Rostow, Henry Kissinger um, and others basically made their careers um, in the NS uh, in the NSC. Kissinger eventually became Secretary of State, um, but uh, it was that's how he made his career. And uh, also, some might say Zbigniew uh, Brzezinski uh, is really important. So it started as essentially an institution that was supposed to coordinate the foreign policy making bodies, because of course, foreign policy is made in a lot of different institutions in the American state, not only in the DOD, which isn't supposed to make foreign policy, but it has a you know, significant influence, uh, but also, you know, in the Department of State, the Department of Treasury, et cetera. So what the NSC was supposed to do was to, to coordinate this. But uh, unsurprisingly, in, in an American structure in which the executive is given an enormous amount of authority, and particularly in foreign policy, what happened over the course of the 20th century's second half is that foreign policymaking got increasingly centralized in the White House and, and literally around the person of the president. So, you know, over the course of, of the 20th century, you have the State Department having less and less influence over foreign policy making, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Department of Defense. But also, in some sense, the Department of Defense, in my opinion, at least, and you know, and it, it differs according to issue area, had less influence on in foreign policy making than the NSC, which basically had direct access to the president. Um, so, 
there's a number of problems with this. Um, first, the NSC is an executive body and making foreign policy and doing things like deciding where the United States should send troops is obviously against the Constitution where Congress is supposed to declare war. I'm sure everyone here listening knows that I don't believe Congress has officially declared war since 1942 when it declared war, war against Romania. Uh, I think it's Romania or Bulgaria is the last one that the U.S. declared, <laughs> U.S. Congress declared war against. But it also allowed for you know people who are unelected to have significant influence on, on national security. The national security advisor, um, if I recall correctly, is not confirmed. So that's how someone like um, Kissinger got initially into the highest levels of power. You know, he just went in through uh, the National Security Council. Brzezinski, the same thing. And so you basically have yeah, this. Yeah, Michael Flynn sorry, could not have gotten, Michael right. Flynn could not have gotten confirmed. Michael Flynn. <laughs> as, as anything. So yeah, that's, that's not a confirmed office. <laughs> right, right, right. Bolton. And so one of the, uh, right, and a uh, uh, some reforms people have suggested. One of the main ones people always suggest is to have the NS National Security Advisor be someone confirmed. But anyway, um, you wind up having this cabal. Do you think? Right th- I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But no, you no, think no. That go would for actually it. Actually, make a difference because um, I think if you subjected the the National Security Advisor to a confirmation process, the White House would just create another job that would do the same job that the National Security Advisor does that isn't confirmed. Confirmed. Yeah, and, you'd and have just, to. Would just yeah, you have to do structural reform. Yeah, you basically have to do structural reform. And in fact, Steve Bannon tried and failed to do this. He tried to basically create a shadow NSC uh, and was, I believe, shut down by McMaster. McMaster basically bureaucratically outmaneuvered him in the first year of the Trump administration, if I recall correctly. But yeah, so I mean, so this is this big problem with this sort of like small group of people making enormous decisions about U.S. foreign policy. They're not the only group of people, but they're a group of people that's basically subject uh, to no real oversight. Uh, and that are organized, you know, that's that's functionally organized around the president. So it's, you know, a, a very stark example of the extremely undemocratic nature of U.S. foreign policy making. I don't know if you had a chance to see this, um, but when we when you talk about the linkages between uh, the military industrial complex and the military intellectual complex, um, there's there was a new report just, I think, earlier this week, maybe, uh, from the Center for International Policy, uh, where they tried to, to look at think tanks. And this is where I want to kind of take us next, is sort of the institutional challenges to, to, to reforming or, or to kind of changing the direction of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, but this, this CIP report looked at where think tanks are getting their money from uh, and found just a shocking level of of financing coming from the U.S. government, they found one one billion dollars uh, in in the period uh, 2014 to 2019 uh, going to think these think tanks. Um, the 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 largest recipients were uh, Rand, which I know is a place you're familiar with. You've written about Rand. I I actually worked at Rand for a couple of years. Oh, um, huh. the, in the Santa the Monica Sen- office. No, well, no. I worked in their Pittsburgh satellite office, and then I worked in uh, Cutter on their on the on a project they were oh. doing in Cutter. Uh, so you had top secret clearance project. I I did not have top secret okay. clearance, nor would I have wanted top secret. No, this <laughs> okay. was this was one of their like domestic uh, feel good yeah. domestic programs that that they do to, uh, I think partly to kind of demystify the organization a, a bit, but uh, for sure, yeah. Re- regardless. 
Um, it was ran the Center for New American Security and the New America Foundation got the the most uh, most funding, uh, and they found you know money coming from uh, the office of the Secretary of Defense, the Air Force, the Army, Department of Homeland Security, and then on the private side from you know all the suspects you would all the usual suspects Raytheon, Boeing, yeah. Northrop Grumman, and probably also uh, a lot Grumman. of uh, foreign investment too in certain things. Um, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean that's a separate thing. There's a, there's a lot of you know sort of sketchy foreign funding going to to the shell companies, uh, think tanks, and, things, yeah. and also universities, uh, which is another. How thing we dare can, we you can talk about? Yeah, how dare you? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> um, but but this is. I mean, this is sort of where, um, you know, as you said, the the military intellectual complex kind of decides. Uh, how to use these weapons and where to use these weapons. But uh, to, to some extent, they also decide uh, what weapons the United States Absol- needs. Weapon, system, weapon systems, right, weapon basically. Systems, yeah. right. At the level of the and, weapon and system, basically. And so you get you know this funding coming in from defense contractors from Raytheon from the defense department <laughs> right that that you know how does this it's how crazy, does this yeah. kind of play out in terms of sure uh, so you know where where things go from you know in terms so of I think it's really important to, to actually know the history here because so the American state is is not that big or it's not a behemoth like it like it is uh, like it like it becomes until really World War two and so right after World War two you have all of these people come together and they're basically asking this question what is this post-war state going to look at like right uh, and so there's actually a conservative opposition to what I termed you know these New Deal esque organizations um, and so someone like Vannevar Bush who, who's trying to organize basically the post-war military research effort is essentially very firm in his his conviction that the people who should be deciding what is researched um, are, are scientists, right? This is the idea that the experts are going to actually um, determine what is re- researched after World War II. And he basically maneuvers successfully through these, you know, porous borders between state and non-state in the mid to late 1940s to have it so that the uh, American state, the American government, essentially, um, not totally initially, but I think over time, basically totally outsourced source things like research and thinking about U.S. foreign policy. So you have this network. It's actually started with RAND. RAND was started as a, and RAND's sort of perfect for this because it started as a collaboration between uh, the Department of, of War um, and particularly the Army Air Forces, which becomes an independent service in 1947, uh, and which was before then part of the Army. Uh, Douglas Aircraft Corporation, which is one of the biggest defense contractors in World War II, uh, and scientists themselves. And so initially, RAND is actually headquartered in a defense contractor in Douglas before becoming, quote-unquote, independent in 1948, even though it's effectively an institution of the state. So what you have in the United States is this network of research institutions that are effectively, not 100%, but in my opinion, effectively, um, free from any sort of serious oversight. Um, at times, there's been more oversight. There were various controversies 
one in the 1950s and uh, in late 1950s and uh, more throughout the history. But essentially, these um, think tanks function as the research arm of the American government and, and have almost no oversight to what, what they're saying. And, and to be, I, I mean, you're someone who worked at RAND. I think it's pretty hard, I would imagine. I've never worked for one of these organizations, but it's probably pretty hard to be an anti-imperialist and be, you know, in a national security think tank. So to even advance within these institutions, you have to basically buy in to, at the very least, the project of American empire in the sense that you believe the United States should be the armed prime power in the world. Um, and in fact, some major thinkers, people like Francis Fukuyama, really got their careers started at, at RAND uh, and other national security think tanks, other Rose Gottemuller and um, other people in addition to her. So think tanks essentially provide almost a bench for future foreign policy uh, making apparatuses. And, you know, on the left, we don't really have um, any think tank. I mean, we have a recent one in the Quincy Institute, sort of an anti-interventionist uh, think tank. Um, but this is a very recent development. And so the left has been effectively, because it hasn't, you know, built its own quasi-state institutions, it never had a real candidate until Bernie, has been effectively shut out from any serious par foreign policy making. And I think that has, in fact, had the deleterious effect of, of leading the left to basically substitute um, critique for policy, where, you know, should Bernie have won, I'm not sure the left would have been in the greatest position because there wasn't a particularly deep bench of people who would have been able to literally do things like staff the State Department or staff the National Security Council. So when I was when I was um, advising Bernie, one of the things that I kept on stressing in these memos was that, like, should Bernie win, one of the first things he needs to do is literally just set up task forces to figure out how these institutions actually function and what are potential like weak points if he's was serious about doing things like at least drawing down the American empire and lessening the defense budget. Like we don't even have the knowledge on the left about what would need to be done should we uh, actually enter office at some point. Um, yeah, and I would, I mean, I would say, uh, without meaning this as a critique, I, I, I would say Quincy is um, not a left institution. I mean, it's, it's it's not a left. It's it's consciously it's really, publicly not a left institution. Right. That's I mean, not consciously, a it's not. They say yeah. it. <laughs> um, a lot of leftists. I'm not it, saying but, yeah. it here to like dismiss them because I think the work that uh, the the perspective that Quincy offers is an important one and it's it's valuable. Um, but they're not advocating a, a left foreign policy. They're advocating an, a non-interventionist or at least a drawdown uh, in intervention, which is which is compatible in some ways, but is not uh, the same thing. So when you so I'm a member of Quincy. So um, the way that I see it is I'm a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute, um, and I was, I've been involved since the beginning. I think that there's broad agreement on the Middle East. I think pretty much everyone in the Quincy Institute thinks the United States should not be a heavy intervener in the Middle East. I think there's disagreement over East Asia. Um, yeah. I think that's probably where the biggest, and I actually wrote an article about this coming out in the New Republic um, within the next week or two. Uh, I think that's a big fault line within the so-called restraint community, which Quincy represents very consciously. Um, well, that I mean, that's interesting because I think, you know, I don't want to like get too deep into politics because I, I I hate doing that really because <laughs> uh, it, it obscures a lot. But uh, like one of the things that I I, I think, you know, if if Joe Biden wins and I, you know, polling looks a certain way, but I don't know how reliable that is. Um, if he wins, uh, one of the things that I think 
Um, and I think people are going to be surprised at, at, at the, there will be a few things um, that despite the fact that we've been talking for four years about Donald Trump as uh, a, an existential terror and, and threat to uh, the United States, there will be a few things that a Biden administration will capitalize on. And I think one of those things is uh, the U.S.-Chinese relationship. I, I, I don't think... Uh, you're going to see I think you're going to see Biden try to build on the hostility, basically, uh, that exists now that that maybe didn't exist before. Um, and, and that's one one area, I think, where you're right. There's sort of a uh, it's it's unsettled. I think the 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 kind of uh, line, you know, the, the I don't want to say battle lines, but the sort of, um, you know, where people sit on on the issue of. U.S.-China relations is one of those things that's very unsettled right now. Um, yeah, in, and I in think in terms of this discourse. No, I think that's right, and I think Biden's been like incredibly anti-China. I mean, in the last debate, he said something along those lines, like Trump was fooled by China. Incredibly xenophobic rhetoric, especially given the history of anti-Chinese racism and legislation in this country. So it's you know obviously morally abhorrent. Um, it'll be interesting though, because um, regardless. Uh, of even where, wherever you stand on the China issue, I mean, the U.S. and Nazi Germany and the U.S. and Soviet Union just never had the economic connections that the U.S. and the PRC do. Uh, so that's new, right? Like the, the the PRC and the United States are so economically imbricated. I don't right. quite see how you're right. going to have a new Cold War with China in the same way, unless you cut off those economic ties, which are it, it, as far you know. I'm not an economic and IPE specialist, but that seems pretty impossible, um, at least in the even short and medium term. So it'll be interesting to see if that's just this rhetoric. Biden uses it like as political leaders have used sort of othering uh, throughout history in order to rally some domestic support for himself, or whether it actually turns into anything meaningful. My guess is that'll be that'll be rhetoric but you know i've been known to be wrong uh, i thought hillary was going to win in 2016 um but i just don't see how they'll be like a serious um new cold war equivalent to the soviet union beyond uh rhetoric but you know i hope i i actually i mean i hope i'm not proven wrong but i could very well be proven wrong um yeah i mean it's it's sort of not only not only are, are the u.s and china you know much more tightly intertwined than than the u.s and uh, the Soviet Union were, but the U.S. and the Soviet Union weren't facing the climate kind of change problems. or pandemic. Right. They weren't or, facing yeah. climate change. They weren't facing, you know, th there's there's a lot of things on the horizon now that like you cannot address. You can't even begin to address these problems uh, if you start from the framework of, OK, we're going to have another Cold War with China. Like you have given up the possibility of resolving any of this stuff. You're you're choosing uh, to have, you know, basically a, a contest for hegemony uh, with China over a world that is going to go through massive upheavals because of that contest, because you're, you're sort of foreclosing on the possibility of collaboration, which is uh, is sort of uh, maddening. In a sense well, to watch I, I would even get it say that or, or, you know, go in that direction. I would even add to that. I don't think China has world spanning ambitions like the United States has had world spanning ambitions. I think China wants to basically be able to be an independent actor, probably by not relying on the dollar, probably by not relying on international institutions that are effectively governed by the U.S. and the West, and by essentially ensuring it has access to particular raw materials and natural resources that it feels it needs. I don't think China wants to create like a global new world order like the United States claim to want to do. Um, 
I think that is unique to the United States due to it, sort of this Christian millenarian heritage that uh, this country was founded on and with. We, we're kind of we kind of gotten away from from where I was heading, but that's that's good. I think it's been fine. But I do I want to kind of uh, look at the other uh, piece of what I think is the institutional kind of um, blocks, uh, you know, kind of the institutional blockade on on changing U.S. foreign policy, which is the university angle. Uh, you know, as you as you wrote in your your piece on realism, there's a lot of um, you know, sort of a connect, a deep connection between uh, the university infrastructure and, you know, kind of having to go through that and go through the ranks, get your PhD to be taken seriously and kind of uh, influence policy. Uh, and, you know, that the foreign policy establishment we've been talking about. And, and that, it seems to me, has the effect of winnowing people out because there is a certain kind of um, and not to say that people don't kind of slip through the cracks, but there is a certain, um, you know, there's a certain worldview in a general sense uh, that you're given, you know, as you kind of come through the uh, university IR programs. Uh, and I, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and, and what are, you know, what do you see? Do you see it as, as uh, this is something that's changing or something that's going to be, uh, a serious obstacle again as you talk about kind of building up a capacity building up a bench for a president like a bernie sanders who wants to make uh fundamental changes and and is going to have to find people trained people who know what they're doing who can can uh, do that while you know kind of supporting that 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 view of things yeah i i should say that there's always been criticisms of realism from the very beginning sort of feminist criticisms of realism marxist criticisms of realism liberal criticisms of realism liberals argue that international institutions are more important than than realist claims so i i i shouldn't say realism's sort of the only game in town but i would say that has been hegemonic um i do think that's changing though um i think as generations get further and further from the cold war that type of cold war-esque realist view is just less and less powerful particularly amongst you know people my age i'm, I'm about to turn 36 uh and younger where their experience of u.s foreign policy has essentially been iraq afghanistan libya syria disaster 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 their experience of american capitalism has been you know the great recession and student loans and so i think that there is definitely a, a large questioning of the system that that's happening now um and i think you'll probably it'll be difficult to see what exactly that means until the baby boomers retire or die um and new generations actually enter into the halls of power in a meaningful way and until then every anything is prognostication and i don't know what is um accurate or not but um, my sense is as someone who's kind of uh, has at least one foot in these worlds is that uh sorry in the world of policy makings that uh, for people under 30 it's it's a different world different assumptions about the world the third leg of this, it seems to me, is journalism, uh, the media. And and I think about, you know, uh, my I mean, my background is more kind of Middle East, um, Iran specifically. And the fact that uh, you pretty much can't get can't find an article uh, about Iran in The New York Times that doesn't quote somebody from like the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, which is just, the, you know, it's kind of. Uh, I thought this podcast you know, was sponsored when, by the FDD. Yeah, 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it might as well be, right? <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, these, you know, these, these guys who, uh, you know, advocate, uh, you know, sort of hostility, you know, provoking Iran and, and, and you know, in hopes of regime change uh, down the line. And I, I think uh, more broadly than that, there, there's a problem, it seems to me, where, and again, this is something that may be changing, uh, but you have... Uh, a certain way things are done at major media outlets at the Times, at the Washington Post, uh, the Wall Street Journal, certainly and not and not just on the editorial pages where you have uh, certainly a, a, a certain worldview is is prevalent uh, in those places. But among, you know, in terms of the reporting, there is a certain there's a there's a framework and a mindset of, you know, what gets taken seriously and what doesn't. And, uh, you know, another example I can uh, that that comes to mind is the story that, that you know was made this big splash earlier this year about uh, Russian intelligence has been paying the the Taliban to kill American soldiers uh, in Afghanistan that never seems to have gone past the level of like a couple of anonymous sources told me that there's some intelligence like there's no there's been no further kind of proof that that program exists uh, and yet it was sort of. Uh, you know, was became this runaway thing. It still is. I mean, it's still something that that people bring up. Um, and and I think because it, that it's that's the case because there is a mindset that like, okay, if if somebody in the intelligence community gives me this, uh, it must be true, and I have to report on it, and I shouldn't, you know, uh, be too critical of it because it's you know you know these guys are uh, experts and they know what they're doing. And there's sort of a deference to the the national security state. I don't know. I'm I'm like rambling here, but like, what what's your take on the the sort of co contribution that that media makes to uh, locking in the establishment kind of viewpoint. I think, I mean, I, I think I did an interview with Matt Dust for Jacobin where he gets into this a little bit, where to, to be taken, quote unquote, seriously. And, you know, I would say the media is part of the military intellectual complex, maybe a bit, a bit less intellectual, ha ha ha. But um, I think <laughs> that they're, you know, they're broadly part of the people who create the idea of Gramscian hegemony about what is in the discourse and what is outside of the discourse. So in that sense, I think um, they are uh, very crucial. But again, I would say there is going to be, or at least my sense is, that people who work in media who are around my age and younger are much more skeptical of American power. So for example, in I think it was September, or autumn 2018, I wrote a piece for the Times that never would have been able to have been published before Trump about, you know, and what an, a left-wing foreign policy or essentially what a, a, a anti-militarist foreign policy would look like. And, you know, that got into the New York Times. Um, and so that shows that a little bit things are changing. Someone like Steve Wartime of the Quincy Institute just had something out in the New York Times today. It's uh, October 15th. Um, shows things are, that is very, sorry, very critical of American hegemony. So it shows things are changing, but I think that these things are going to be glacial, particularly because media like academia, like any culture industry today, um, is slowly becoming the province of, of the moneyed elite. And so the moneyed elite, the people who benefit from the status quo, are more likely to defend the status quo. Um, so we'll see if that happens. Um, though at the same time, institutions like Twitter, um, social media, do genuinely democratize the public sphere and what's considered uh, you know acceptable. Like, I, I can't imagine how many times Max Boot has been called a moron on Twitter in the last, you know, five or six years. Uh, and that has take, to have They're going to take that away eventually. I'm convinced of that. They're going to take that, that, 
that release away from people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they, they might, but I think we're basically like the famous Gramsci quote I use all the time. It's like, you know, the old world is dying and the new is yet to be born. I think we're in that moment and something new is coming though. It's tough to know what. Is there, is there anything you feel? And I, we can, I, we could continue this for forever. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to wrap it up though. And, yeah. I got to go you know, actually more, for another more podcast. To come. <laughs> so there you go. Um, is there like, if you had to pick like one or two things that people on the left could be doing to hasten this, is it setting up uh, a genuinely, and I know there are small left wing kind of research institutes in DC, but the problem with the left is, is always is, money, right? Like this is the right. I mean, the that's we don't the, have it. Yeah, they, <laughs> they don't have the, the money to kind of get the message out there. Um, and, and do a lot of the work. So if, is there anything that you think, uh, would be particularly effective in kind of getting in through the cracks and, uh, hastening the, the new, this new world? Well, I, I think that institution building is actually critical. Um, and I think that's how throughout history in, in, you know, Europe and the United States, which is the history I know best, and I'm sure it's true elsewhere as well, uh, you know, small, well-motivated, well-organized people who build institutions are able to have a significant effect beyond their numbers. So building institutions is always important. But I would also say, particularly if you're a younger person that are prob- and critical of U.S. empire and have a heterodox approach to U.S. foreign affairs, there's probably more like you. So, you know, it might be easier to be critical at a place like Rand than it was when you were there. I mean, that might not be the case. And at some point, you don't want to just be the one person, the the one dissenting voice in the room who they always have there as a token (laughs) and then they ignore. But I mean, I think one would want to be open to the various institutional means through which uh, one might go about changing foreign policy, both, you know, in the state and in the in the power state institutions and building institutions themselves. And then second, I think just the project of education is a really critical one and a really important socialist one you know what we're doing here what what chapo is doing people doing things like that you know just when uh, younger people's first exposure to to foreign affairs thinking is more critical uh, than it might have been in the 80s 90s or 2000s that's really important so i think education and institutions are the way to go right now all right education and institutions there you have it guys um (laughs) i i will i think we'll leave it there um more to come um and daniel will be writing more pieces to come for foreign exchanges so uh definitely you know everybody should check those out you should uh pick up his book uh democracy in exile uh i'll put a link to that i just found out there'll be an audiobook version of it Uh, an audio wow are you gonna get like some uh are you gonna do the audiobook or some you're gonna hire like some actor like big shot actor to do it uh, I actually, uh, I was going to ask you, do you want to do it? <laughs> no, they're go- they, they have their own people who they use. I'm uh, sure. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah, they yeah. have their own people. Daniel, thanks for being on the, on the show. And, uh, you know, we'll be doing this again uh, soon. Thanks so much, Derek. Uh, talk to you soon. All right. That's it for us for another week. I want to thank Daniel Bessner. Uh, once again for coming on the program he is foreign exchanges columnist uh, still newish I think it's been a little over a month so I think we can still call him new uh, but probably not for very much longer Uh, so thanks to him for coming on Uh, check out his columns uh, at fx.substack.com and buy his book I'll put a link to to where you can find his book for sale uh, Democracy in Exile buy it, uh, buy it, buy it, buy it Uh, (laughs) thanks again to Daniel Uh, And as always, to you guys, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.
Take care. Bye-bye.